Hello and welcome to Off the Record 2.0, now with 50% less nasally white guy voice. Thanks so much for sticking with us. I hope you enjoy what we have in store. I would also like to caution you that this episode probably won't be indicative of every episode that you're going to hear like this for now, so please keep an open mind over the next few episodes. I got a bunch of really awesome new contributors and a new producer-showrunner for the show that I'm really excited about. We're going to be doing some really cool in-depth things, and this is just the beginning of a taste of what we're going to be doing. So please stick around and see what we're going to do, but I'm pretty proud of this. I think we got some cool stuff. So on this week's episode, I talked to the band Publicist UK, who just released a really awesome record this week on Relapse Records. It's very interesting, cool, brooding, dark music. What I think is the more interesting thing about them is that they recorded a record without all of them having ever met and got signed to a huge indie label without them having met. And I talk about how that changes their creative process. But first, I get to talk to my good friend Finn McKenty. So here comes that. Up first, I talked to my friend and head of the audio channel at Creative Live, which is an awesome online education. And by audio channel, I mean there's tons of cool bands and instructors teaching people how to do skills and music, record production, the music business. There's tons of cool stuff there. But Finn also has a cool new project called the Punk Rock MBA, where he's teaching lessons on real life and business through what you learn in the punk scene and it's just awesome and I got the chance to talk to him and get some really insightful stuff and I'm really psyched on this conversation we had so listen to Finn talk. Tell me what the Punk Rock MBA is. Uh, well, the Punk Rock MBA is a website at thepunkrockmba.com. Uh, specifically, the, the elevator pitch is that it's lessons for business from DIY culture, and I include, uh, under the heading of DIY culture, I include punk rock, hardcore, skateboarding, graffiti, hip-hop, really anything that's, you know, created by the kids, for the kids, which is, you know, how, uh, which are basically all the cultures I grew up in, and and if you're listening to this, probably you grew up in one of those cultures, too. Um, and for a while, you know, I thought, oh, wow, what a what a waste like, uh, why did I spend my teens and my 20s on all this dumb shit? Like, I could have been doing this. I could have been doing that. Um, and, of course, sometimes I still tell myself that. But uh, what I realized at some point was, wow, actually, from from doing all that stuff, um, you know, from, from all those years spent in DIY culture, I actually learned a lot that has enabled me to be successful, not in spite of being into hardcore in the 90s but because of it specifically like so you know you think about like like back in like 1996 you know i lived in cleveland we heard there was a show in pittsburgh i don't remember what band it was abnegation or something we heard abnegation was playing in pittsburgh that night like that's literally all we knew and somehow we and we're like oh let's go we didn't know where it was like what time it was like who else was playing anything like that Yet somehow we we found our way to the show a couple hours later, you know. And so you think about like the kind of resourcefulness that that teaches, um, and you know then the hard skills of like promoting a show or releasing a record or putting out a zine, starting a band, booking a tour, any of that stuff. You're learning operations, you're learning accounting, you're learning marketing, you're learning all that stuff that applies to business in like you know the most unforgiving. 
uh, environment possible, which is, you know, some like punk rock flop house in like a bad part of Philadelphia. So the punk rock MBA, to make a long story short, is basically our attempt to, um, you know, document all those lessons and, and, and apply them to the world of business. So uh, right now, I think most of the people who read it uh, are people like us who grew up in the scene, but uh, hopefully I want people from outside of the scene to read it and, you know, hopefully get inspired and maybe learn something from it. Awesome. I've been, you, you are correct. I've been really enjoying reading it, particularly, you know, it's funny, like what I thought about uh, talking about this is one of the quotes from a podcast that stuck with me the most was when you interviewed Mike Mowry for the Creative Live podcast. And he said, behind any great business, there's a hardcore kid kicking ass behind the scenes. Um, and I really like that you have these profiles that have been so far, I mean, you're only a few weeks into it, but the diversity of who you've had on there and showing how they've taken the lessons of punk and brought their lives really makes me realize I didn't always realize that that's where I learned some of these things was from punk rock. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, when you were, you know, doing shows at the pipeline, you know, when you were a kid, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that's talk about sink or swim, you know, uh, and you're not dead. So I guess that means that you swam. To, to, sometimes in pools of blood from the skidheads getting in fights. <laughs> you know, so I guess my point is if you can somehow find a way to, I mean, that's running a business, really. I mean, putting on a show is running a business. If you can find, if you can find a way as a 18 or 19 year old kid to, you know, run a business when there's like literally like heads being split around you, um, then a lot of other business challenges seem a lot less intimidating. That's funny because that draws me to a thing like that I read today in you guys' profile of uh, Justin Brandon from Indecision and Most Precious Blood who now works in the de Blasio administration in the Department of Education. Is He talked about when he worked at Bear Stearns, which is one of the biggest yeah. financial uh, yeah, biggest entities in the world. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he talked about how Bear Stearns' hiring policy was much more about that, like, if you're just poor and hungry and you know how to – be scrappy that they're going to take you on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, I, I worked at uh, Abercrombie & Fitch for a couple years, and it was it was really eye-opening um, <clears throat> to kind of see, you know, I, I didn't grow up around, I grew up on welfare, and all my friends were pretty much in the same situation and stuff, and so I say that not because I want anybody to feel sorry for me, but just that's the only side of the world that I ever knew mm -hmm. until I was, you know, well into my 20s. Um, I didn't know anybody that was ever, you know, where going to an Ivy League school was ever like something that, that was stuff that only happened in movies, you know? And so then I worked at Abercrombie for about four years and they hire a whole lot of, uh, of Ivy League people. So I worked with them for a, a few years and what I, what I discovered about them was very interesting. They're really great at following a plan. I mean, that's, that's what got them to where they're at. They, someone said, here's what you have to do to get into Harvard. And starting at the age of like eight or whatever it is, like they did all that stuff. They followed all the steps and they got into Harvard, which is not easy to do. And they finished Harvard, which is not easy to do. And then they got hired by a company like Abercrombie, which is also not easy to do. Um, and so, I mean, they did it and I didn't. So uh, I really respect that. But what I saw as their weakness is when things didn't go according to plan, a lot of times they floundered because I realized that their whole lives they'd been following a plan that someone else put in front of them. Uh, and the problem is that in business, how often do things go according to plan? <laughs> Almost never. Absolutely never, yes. Right. 
So, um, you know, I think that that kind of resourcefulness and scrappiness that comes with, you know, again, DIY culture being nine times, 90, nine, 90% of it is a kid having an idea, having no fucking clue how to go about doing it and then just doing it anyway. Um, and I think that that's really at the core of what drives innovation in business. I mean, you know, Google didn't know how to do Google before there was Google. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, build this crazy search engine that does this and this and this. How do you do that? Well, fuck if I know, but we're going to figure it out. Um, and I've found that, you know, it's, it, it really is true what Mike said. You know, you sniff around long enough and you're like, okay, there, I found him. There's the hardcore kid. It, it, it's true. And I think um, one of the funny things of this is like you're talking about like these Harvard people. I think one of the, I had like a really eye opening conversation years ago with a friend where he talked about, um, and he's an, a, a high school teacher for a living. He talks about that, you know, there's book smart people, but then the real test of intelligence is synthesis. And yes. the idea that you can take two things and then turn it into something that wasn't there before, which some people would deem being creativity. But yep. I think there's a bit of a difference there. And I think that is the thing is that so many people who just do the book smart thing and just do what they're told don't have that. But when you go through this punk rock life, you're one probably going to be on some forums where you're taught to be challenged about your ideas and you're going to discuss things with people where you're going to have to learn new things. And then secondly, you're going to have to kind of learn how to synthesize and make a, a, a quick decision when all of a sudden there's a fight at the show you put on or right. somebody in your band just you know did something sexually inappropriate. You have to deal with how they handle the press as seems to happen to a different band every other day these days. Uh, again, how often do things go according to plan? Almost never. So I would say that the ability to follow a plan is valuable to an extent, but the the ability to to scramble, I would say, is probably a, something that comes up. It's probably something that, that that is valuable more often. The one thing I would say that has come up in a lot of those interviews that's a little bit of a, a weakness or a counterpoint to that is that I think it's fair to say most of us. Uh, don't always like following someone else's plan, and, oh, yeah. uh, and that's 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 a that's a big problem mm-hmm. because most of the time in life you don't get to decide the plan. Most of the time, uh, you got to do what someone else says, or at least compromise with them, and that's a big weakness for a lot of us that grew up in the DIY scene. Certainly, myself included, and it's been really interesting to me to hear that come up from other people unprompted specifically i think the biggest weakness because of course like what's the is it is it infest that had the sh- the shirt or seven inch or whatever that said like speak out yes 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 um you know i mean that's that's the message like in every like hardcore punk song is like you know or even graffiti like any of these things is like hey man you know don't be afraid to like you know speak your mind and so, you know, we spent 20 years being conditioned to, like, say what we think. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's lots of times where maybe the world doesn't necessarily want to know what you think, and you'd be better served keeping it to yourself. So that's a lesson that I think a lot of us have had to learn the hard way and, and maybe continue to learn the hard way. I, I think that's a great point. And I think it's also a funny is you're such an interesting example of all this because obviously it's, like, a pretty funny thing that – you know, we're talking about punk rock, and then the least punk rock company on earth, in at least fashion sense, is Abercrombie and Fitch, pretty much. Yeah. And 
you found a way to work there. Do you have any advice on how you've gotten to a point where you're able to do that and now you work at a, you know, very, very esteemed uh, tech company in Silicon Valley, even though you're in the Seattle branch of it. This is a company with all the hype in the world and business savvy and millions of dollars behind it. Yeah, well, the way that I got uh, the job at Abercrombie is that I tweeted, hey, I want a new job. Uh, Here's what I do. Can anyone help? And then somebody replied, I work at Abercrombie. I can hook you up. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and he got me an interview and you know then then I successfully navigated the interview process which you know that that didn't happen by magical networking but the hardcore network is what got me in the door for sure it was somebody that read my blog and he's in a bunch of like gross like you know basement grindcore bands and stuff in the 90s and knows all the same people we know and all that stuff when I was interviewing there like uh, they had me do like a put together kind of like a a sample project for what I would would do for them, and and I just sort of you know as sort of a joke to myself, I put a couple. I, I used like a line in there, like somewhere in there, "Memories of Tomorrow," which, as you may know, is a suicidal tendency song. <laughs> and uh, one of the guys interviewing me was like looking through it, and he stopped and paused. He's maybe ten years older than me, and he looks up at me, and he's like, "Is that like a suicidal tendencies thing?" <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Oh yeah," and he's like, "Oh man." I, Love them. It turns out he grew up in Portland, like, you know, like saw Poison Idea in 1982 and all this stuff. And, <laughs> you know, so, and then, and then I, it, it turns that I, oh, well, here's a good one. My first day at Abercrombie, I sat down, uh, and the guy next to me was listening to, to, to music that sounded kind of familiar. And I was like, well, what, what is that? Like, why do I recognize that? And I was like, hey, what are you listening to? And he's like, uh, Bulldoze. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, so, and then I come to find out that basically, you know, seventy-five percent of the people in creative roles at Abercrombie are like are like us, uh, and that's true in every industry. I mean, like the creative industry. I mean, guess what? It's not full of normal people, you know. So, if there's somebody that has a creative job, chances are they grew up like we did, more or less. They might be an indie person, which I think is actually very different. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately is like, what's the difference between, like, because like indie culture to me is just like, it's not for me. It's like oil and water, you know? And I've been I've been thinking about this quite a bit. Like, what are the differences between indie culture and what I guess I would call, you know, DIY culture? And I think about like graffiti and skateboarding and hardcore and hip hop all have this like really heavy element of like male aggression and competition and confrontation that's like not just a byproduct it's like a core element of it like in skateboarding you're trying to outdo each other in graffiti you know you battle each other um you know in in at hardcore shows like you dance and that dancing is you know maybe a little bit closer to fighting than it is dancing and that's all like embraced like if you don't do that stuff you're an outsider you mm-hmm. know what i mean so there's just like this inherent element of like pretty intense confrontation and male aggression that's part of the DIY scene that is definitely not part of the indie scene and i'm not making a judgment about that one way or the other which is which one is better or worse um I guess in general, probably yeah, you're like young men being violent towards each other is probably not a good thing. But <laughs> you know, or or an appropriate way to deal with your latent sexual aggression. <laughs> <laughs> right. The point is, like, you know, so like you and you and I, like, uh, you know, you could be like, I'd be like, hey, what do you think about this? And you'd be like, uh, I think it's a pretty shitty idea. 
And I go, mm-hmm. oh, okay. You know, it's no big deal because we're used to that sort of like, you know, aggressive confrontational attitude. Whereas, you know, indie, the indie scene does not handle that well. You mm-hmm. know, uh, we meet, we, we fight fire with fire. They fight fire by sort of running away and like pass, making passive aggressive tweets about it. Or complaining um, about the way it's done. But yeah, I, I do get, get what you're saying. I, I am often disturbed by that. Just it's, different ways of dealing with like conflict. And I'm not saying one is better than the other, but they're definitely different. And, and I think, I guess just the key takeaway there that for me, you know, even at the age of 36 has been, I mean, I'm always trying to learn is like, you know, I go, well, it's, it seems to a normal person, like, you know, me being a hardcore dude and this other person being an indie rocker or whatever, um, it, it seems like we're cut from the same cloth to a normal person, but we're actually not. Um, and that's important for me to recognize so that I interact, you know, with this other person in, in the appropriate way. Specifically, they don't come on too strong because they're probably not going to like that too much. It's an interesting, interesting point because I do have that thing of that. The second I hear somebody grew up like you and I did, and you know, for anybody who hasn't heard you and I talk before, doesn't know the background, is that Finn and I met once when we were young, and then later reconnected through the power of the internet, um, and surprisingly had a million things in common because we came from the same place and had crossed paths before. And I do think that's an interesting thing because. While I'll listen to an indie band here or there, and I even listen to dance music, I very rarely can deal with these people in the same comfort I have as immediately as then talking to you and even meeting you in a business context. It was very easy to just be myself and be direct. Yeah, and it has nothing to do with whether I like the music or not. I think most hardcore is awful music. Yes. You know. <laughs> 110%. Yeah, I mean, there's like five good hardcore bands, and, and Todd Jones was in all of them. So, <laughs> uh, like, so it's, it, to be clear, it's not about my personal tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just about the culture. Yes. And, and I think that's a really important thing for people from our background to recognize, especially if like, you're from the East Coast, which I'm not. But like, you know, an East Coast hardcore graffiti person is going to have a super, 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 super strong personality that in a lot of situations is not going to serve them well. In some situations, it's going to serve them extremely well. In other ones, you know, I mean, I think in almost one of my professors in school like, made a great point, which is in, in almost all situations, our strengths are also our weaknesses. Um, it, you know, it's it's sort of like a pendulum. So the fact that like I'm like uh, hyper analytical and really type A is an extreme asset in some situations. Like when I have to like figure out a complex, like difficult problem, it's that's an asset. Um, in a situation where I have to like, you know, make small talk with somebody that I'm not really that interested in making small talk with, it's a killer because I'm really bad at faking that. So I think mm-hmm. that. The big takeaway, yeah, and this—I mean, I'm—I'm I'm hardly alone on there. I mean, there's a reason why your job is is to sit in a windowless room, 14 hours a day, listening to the same thing on repeat. It's not—it's not because you're great with people, you know. <laughs> to an extent, I'm trying to do this podcast thing and meet new people. <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> you know, uh, the the dunce cap incident might be <laughs> okay, yeah. kind of a reflection of maybe there was another way to resolve that situation. Maybe there was another way to make your point. <laughs> Finn's referring to when I made a dunce cap for a member of a popular punk band who uh, kept smoking weed behind my back and then couldn't sing because he had so much cotton mouth. 
Um, so you know, may, maybe maybe making a dunce, maybe constructing a dunce cap and making him wear it. You know, you got your point across, but maybe there was another way of getting your point across. I don't know. Jeez. <laughs> now, now I'm feeling shameful about one of the things I'm most proud I did. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I, I admit, I was I was kind of I had a proud dad moment when I heard about that. I was like. <laughs> Sounds like something Jesse would do. I'm upset that I didn't think of it first. <laughs> so one last uh, point I'd like to make that I think is a, a good punk rock lesson, which is also that like I think a lot of people get scared in their punk rock years that um, pursuing these dreams is going to all be for nothing. And I think one of the coolest things you're doing with these profiles of people who've gone on from the shitty band that didn't make any money and you know maybe had their moment we got played on mtv or a cool article in spin or something that would be a hallmark that they were very proud of is that the life goes on but what i also always think is interesting is that the your life goes on and is way easier because of your punk years because the yeah. people you met met along the way are gonna have so many hookups and you just kind of said it with like that abercrombie thing and like i think one of the things that's always missed is that even if you decide to become a used car salesman or probably a Tesla dealer, because that's really what's going to happen, um, <laughs> is that you're going to have connections that get you far from your time spent here. And you're also going to have things where your time spent here, when you meet somebody else who do it, it's easy to make bonds with those people. And yeah. this time is never for naught. And I, I want to see, because you usually have a wiser way of putting this, what you had to say about that. Well, I totally agree. I mean, and and to put it again in MBA terms, the value of an MBA is not what you learn in the classroom, and anybody will tell you that. You know, you'll learn. You know, I mean, you'll learn something, but that's that's not why you go to get. That's not where you go, especially to an institution like Harvard. It's for the network that you'll form with your peers and access to the alumni network. And so you you think of the time you spend in the scene the the, the same way. I mean, when I met. You know, some of these people, they were nobodies. Um, and now they're somebodies, but it took 20 years for those relationships to grow. But, you know, you, you want to, I guess, latch on to, um, you know, well, so here, here's what I would say is, I, I would say two points is remember, like, don't, don't get too big for your britches and, 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 focus on connecting with your peers. So in other words, if you're just some random little shit in the scene, don't try to be friends with, you know, the cool guy in the popular national band because you guys are not peers. And don't fool yourself when he's nice to you when you're talking to him after the show. You're not friends. He's just being nice to you, you know. Um, Focus on doing stuff with your peers, which is, hey, other little shithead in the scene that nobody cares about. Why don't you and I start a band or put on shows or something like that? Because you have nothing of value to add to the guy in the popular national band. You will probably be able to add a lot of value to someone that's a peer. The second thing is that one of the danger. This is true of any group of people, but in particular with like you know the the music scene, the DIY music scene. There's there's kind of two broad categories of people. There's going to be people that are going to go on to do really cool things, which is the people that we try to document on the Punk Rock MBA. And then there's people who are going to turn into like really sad, tragic, fuck-up losers. Mm-hmm. And the importance of associating yourself with the, the, the right crowd is really important. And, you know, unfortunately, there's some people that I like a lot who have ended up 
falling into the second category that, you know, went to prison or are dead or just like, you know, alcoholics or drug addicts or whatever. And it's important to kind of identify early on um, to be able to say, I don't think this person is headed in this. If, if, if you want to be a successful, like, person with a real career, you know, you got to be able to kind of at some point, I, th- I think it's smart to, to ask yourself, is this person heading in the same direction as I am? And if they're not, then it doesn't mean you have to like, you know, tell them to fuck off and never talk to them again. But, you know, when you're thinking about who should be in your circle of close friends, you know, maybe ask yourself that question, is this person headed in the same direction as I want to head? Um, and as, uh, as I, I, I saw in uh, a magazine recently, there's a really good quote was, if you hang out with nine broke motherfuckers, you'll be number 10, which is yeah. pretty much the perfect way of saying it. I, I didn't realize that they that it's like actually like a Warren Buffett quote that your wealth is the accumulation of the five people you come around, hang around. Because I always heard it as mm. your personality is the accumulation of the five people you talk to the most. And I take that very seriously of like, you know, I... And I think that's the, some one of those things that you don't take as serious when you're young, and a lot of us do it subconsciously. But like, I take it very seriously that I'm not around people constantly that, you know, are bringing me down or to a bad place. And that's not to say you shouldn't be a good friend to somebody when they get in a bad place and run like hell. But it is to say that you do have to take it seriously. That if you're around them all the time and they're not getting better, that you're going to go into a worse place. It will, you know, it it will rub off on you whether you like to or not. And and to sort of tie this all back to like hardcore, the I strangely the the place that I learned that from was from some Krishna book that somebody gave me years ago. <laughs> I don't know if everybody's that, familiar, but the Harry Krishna movement had a big infiltration into hardcore when Finn and I were teenagers. Yeah, maybe for maybe for only about like four or five years or something like that in the nineties. Um the Hare Krishna movement had a big presence in the hardcore scene, so you could you could go to a hardcore show and you know get handed a copy of the Bhagavad Gita or some other like Hare Krishna book. That was the thing that happened back then by some guy in an orange robe. It, it, um, it would also happen all the time. Is like you'd be like, "Hey, David Jones," and he's like, "No, no, 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 that's Vishnu Haro Mishnah now," and you're like, "All right, right, all right dog, like, whatever you say." <laughs> oh, cool. Do you still work at Kinkos? Yeah. <laughs> Well done. Well done. Yeah. Anyway, so that's actually where I learned that. They talk so much about in there about like the importance of association as the term they use for it, which basically means, you know, what we were just talking about, which is you are who you surround yourself with. And it's uh, it's 100% true. And I guess to bring it all uh, full circle, you know, I'm, it, I'm, I'm really genuinely happy to see that the people that I surrounded myself with, and even people that I wasn't necessarily friends with, like, like Ben from Dillinger, you know, I didn't know him back in the day, but we were loosely part of the same circle, um, you know, or you or you know, uh, Kerpaloo or any of these, any of these people that, you know, we kind of were all in the same graduating class of hardcore, let's say. I'm really genuinely happy to see that I associated myself with, um, you know, a group of people that have gone on to do things that I think are pretty cool. And most importantly, uh, have gone on to be, you know, uh, relatively happy, healthy, functional people. And, uh, you know, it's pretty awesome to be able to look back on, you know, 20 years. Like, I don't know, I went to the APMAs the other week and I was like, some of these people I've known for like 15 or 20 fucking years. Uh, and that's pretty cool. And that's, you know, it, it really felt like a class reunion. That's awesome. 
and I've experienced very same. Well, Finn, thank you so much for explaining this, and I, I'm really enjoying this book, and I hope everybody who listens to this does read this because I imagine you're going to want to do something with your life, and there's so much great advice on here that even me, who's been reading this stuff forever, is remembering things and getting um, ideas in my head that are making me do better things every day. Cool. Well, so yeah, head over to uh, thepunkrockmba.com. It's the same thing on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. So head over there and check it out and hope you like it. Thanks so much for being on. And um, I'm sure you're going to be on in the future because I'm going to bug you until you are. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. Awesome. On the new Off the Record, it isn't just two of us talking at you. We'd like to hear about what you think. So this week, I want you to tell Off the Record what you think is the most annoying things bands do on social media. All you got to do is record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at offtherecordfm at gmail.com. That's offtherecordfm at gmail.com. And we'll play the best responses on next week's episode. If you're hearing this music, that means that it's time for an ad. This week's episode is brought to you by a project that's near and dear to my heart. It's my book, Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business, which is a 725-page guide to the ideas, tools, and techniques you need to know to get your music heard in the music business today. I spent four years researching the book, writing down everything I learned about the music business, working in nearly every aspect of the music business since I was a teenager. It has just been updated for 2015, and there's over 100 pages of new or refreshed content in this year's edition. To learn more, go to getmorefansbook.com. Next, I talked to Publicist UK. What got me interested in them was a great article called My Internet Band Signed a Record Deal Without Ever Meeting in Real Life. I found this really intriguing because I've always seen the potential for bands who don't know each other and members to collaborate online, and yet I very rarely see this outside of the electronic music world. I thought this could be a really inspiring story for what could happen with music as the world floods. The internet is flattened music in so many ways, but it seems collaboration still hasn't quite gotten there when it comes to rock music. And I don't know if this is that dance music tends to embrace technology faster than rock music these days. What excited me also was the record is awesome. It sounds like a more goth Nick Cave fronting a band that's really into the Cure, Joy Division, Public Image Limited with a little bit more of a modern heaviness to it. I really enjoy it. So what I wanted to talk to them about was how this new form of collaboration went about to achieve such an awesome result. Here's where that conversation took us. Where did the trust come from that this would work if you guys had never met before? I imagine you guys weren't on some message board where you saw everybody, since everybody comes from such different bands that obviously don't sound like this. How did you guys come to that, this is the right people to do this project with? I came to it because these weren't strangers to me. Uh, aside from Dave Whitty, and even that I wouldn't consider a stranger because I knew his work so well. Zach uh, was in Fresh Kills, and I uh, am in Goes Cube, and our bands used to tour together. Brett used to be in East of the Wall, and East of the Wall used to tour with Goes Cube. So um, I uh, had always admired Zach and Brett in a big way. I count them as influences. I counted them as people I, I looked up to um, and, and really respected so much. 
you know, definitely on this list of people like, God, wouldn't it be great to like do something with them? And I didn't realize that uh, Brett was close friends with Dave Witty. And so uh, Zach and I were the ones who kind of just kicked off the project and Brett followed shortly after. And then when, when Brett played it for Dave and Dave was into it, that so so it, we we didn't all four know each other mutually at first, but uh, but we all uh, there was all these uh, connections um, and there was a, an ingrained trust there. Um, it would never have happened with anybody else. Uh, I, you know, I was the one that probably that knew the least. So um, I was, you know, I was scared. You know, I was like, I, you know, I, I don't like many people and I don't know that many people like me. And so it's, it was definitely the reassurance didn't really even happen. Like I, I, I knew that the music was turning out great. And I was really happy with what everybody was adding. We still all could have gotten into a van and within hours loathed each other, but we haven't yet. I think we knew the same amount of people. Uh, And also, uh, I think Brett's judge of character went a long way for me. My decision to to hop on board, beyond the music sounding great and all that stuff, I really liked it. But, you know, he knows what's up and I trusted him. So that's my take on it. As somebody who's produced, like, hundreds of records, one of the things I kind of always notice about a band that hasn't played much in a room together is that there's usually a lack of arrangement chops and syncopation chops and the music just has a little less compositional depth to it but you guys are which really struck me about this record after reading that article is that was not the case did you guys employ any thoughts to make sure that this wasn't so linear and just like part A, part B, part C, part D, like many, I think, like collaborative parts can be. If they're, you know, they're, they're, there's like this common trope that you have to sit and fight in any practice room to make good music. Was there any thoughts you guys had on that? Well, so I think we probably all did think of it in terms of part A, part B, part C, part D, but I think that because we never communicated with each other, this is part A, this is part B, this is part C, we all had different interpretations of what those parts were. So when I would get songs back from these guys after I sent them the, like, here's all the basic guitar for the song, they would interpret, and Zach would interpret, I mean, like, you know, Zach's it, there are many, many songs on this record where Zach's like, idea of what the chorus was was what I thought what the verse was. So I think because there was a sort of that... The, and we have a real rule in this band about, like, you don't direct each other at all. This is your, your territory is your instrument. And um, there's that's why... You know, I, I think it works well as this four-piece. And so we hand it off to each other. And hey, great. If you if all of a sudden you're going to make this the chorus, that's fantastic. That's a really cool reinterp- uh, reinterpretation. So I think that's why th- um, that happened. Yeah, and a lot of that came up just because I would change things to choruses because for the sole reason of that's the part that I had a good line that bore repeating. and then And then from there I would be like oh well then that the other parts because they're not the chorus are the verses and uh and then oh here's a part that i can't think of anything to sing on this is the bridge and uh and nobody told me i was wrong so yeah it was very open like you contributed your part and it went from there like i guess the prime example of of me thinking outside the box was canary the beat in canaria yeah the progressive upbeat and no one saw that coming no i just you know, I got it, and I was like, "Oh, this would sound cool." And then they and they happened to like it, so it was good. I lucked out. 
guys. Just mentioned that there was a rule. You guys could not comment on each other's playing. I mean, it, it wasn't a formalized rule. Where it was like, you're not allowed to say anything to me. In fact, there were a lot of times people would be like, like hey, man, like, let me know what you think. And if I, and like, you know, uh, I think Brett especially would send us parts and always go like, let me, I will change anything you want. And it would be like, why the fuck would I change this? Why, why the fuck would I ever tell Dave Witty to play something? No, no, Dave Witty. Let, let me tell you what to play on drums. But at the same time, you know, his brain works way different than mine. And, you know, some parts, I would have an idea and he would have an idea, but his idea was more appealing to me. So I actually s sought him out for direction a few times here and there. Like, oh, yeah, I can do this here, but you have such a create All the beats that he sent me in advance were really creative. So I wanted to, you know keep true to that in some sense so he gave me some direction and i built upon that and you know it was it was a nice blend of stuff and i think there was you know we only did a, a little demoing but what demoing we did do i would send it to dave and then he would if if i had done something that was really repetitive he would just send it back without that part and i'd go oh yeah you're right you know but but it's true we never discussed it we, so it is nobody was ever negative there was just and you know and there was a part even when we were in the studio when i couldn't figure out something they had written and me and the producer were like we're just going to take out that one little part and and they were and they were they they seemed happy about it so was there an order to who would get the parts, or was it just who commented first? Like, did you guys have a method to how to construct the songs? So the order goes like this. Um, I send the songs, and then that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then we record a record, and I go, cool. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I send the songs, and I send them to all of them, and I think, you know, I, I'll take it. Well, he would send them out, and then, you know, Zach would take a stab at some first bef before I did. And then some, later on, if, as we progress, I would take a crack at it first and mail it back. And then Brett some is, uh, did the same way as well. But the first uh, few songs I had, I had, it was him and Zach I heard at the same time. And I would add to that. And then it kind of mutated from there. So I think one of the things that a lot of music fans miss in the studio is that in modern life today, it's not like when you watch Rolling Stone's Sympathy for the Devil, the band's not playing live. Did you Were you guys in the studio all at the same time together, or was it just as separated a process as the writing? The common trope is that, like, you're all jamming in the studio live together, or did you guys, like, for example, did you come in, just play to a click yeah, yeah. and a guitar track, and, like, what did you guys do? Yeah, I, I uh, actually played to a click uh, in the practice room, rehearsing the stuff to make demos, and sometimes not. But in the studio, it was uh, it was like that as well. Sometimes to a click, sometimes it didn't work to a click, so we abandoned that and went blind. It was quite a challenge for me to, to you know, adhere to that. But I thought it was a good thing as well. So, but were you guys all in the studio at once together? No. The, <laughs> you, got, you got into drum roll. It's, 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 so, yeah, no. Uh, so, actually, uh, Dave and I were actually in the studio together, but we did not record together. We, um, I, I flew in. It was almost like, was cool. Yeah, and then he cheerleaded me when I when I recorded guitar. So I watched him record. It was awesome. He watched me play guitar, and then he went out to a really nice dinner and a beer tasting, and then he came back and caught some more guitar um, and then went to bed early, probably. <laughs> and then after that, no. Um, yeah, and I know Brett went in by himself. He had to wait till he was done with tour. And uh, I went in, and I was actually just more of do, sort of doing collaborative stuff with Dean, the producer, um, and then we would, like, with a lot of phone calls, 
to these guys sort of if we had a question but um, there was some stuff that had to be rewritten in the studio my vocal lines just because what I'd written wasn't very good so we, we would work on it and yeah so it was, it was definitely just and then, then I would go sleep in Dean's basement and watch Cats on PBS so after doing this process what would you guys refine for your next record we are doing the exact same thing it worked well, I, we, we, not, we, I, have, I have less than zero interest in ever, ever, ever doing let's write songs for 10 hours and me sit on the couch reading Maximum Rock and Roll and being bummed out and like people glaring at each other and like, fuck that. We're, we're, we, Dave writes the songs and then we all add stuff and it worked. So we're going to do that again. Unless these guys contradict me with their answers. <laughs> I think there uh, there might be one mild change that if, if this is from my point of view, and I agree with you completely. That's crazy, but uh, I th- I think this time I'd get skele- in my mind I'd get skeletons, work on them, pass them around all this stuff. Him and I would probably get together and jam them to make them more fluid and, and not as stiff before going to the studio. As long as I don't have to be there. No, you don't have to. Yeah. And, and yeah, 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 I totally agree. Also, it would be nice if you and I actually maybe recorded together in the studio yeah, totally. where I'm actually playing guitar and you're looking at me and you're not just doing it totally to pre-recorded oh, tracks. Yeah. That would be more I, I, exciting. I, I'm totally down to record the album together. I like, I like being around you guys. Oh, it, I just it, don't want to do the fucking process. It just seems like you don't want to spend time with us. Uh, I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> For recommendations this week, I'd like to recommend the movie Mistress America. It's the new movie from Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, who also did uh, Francis Ha. I think this is a better, funnier version of a similar movie. It's just awesome, and I totally loved it. Here's one from Finn McKenty. Something I'm really enjoying is a website called Quora.com, Q-U-O-R-A.com. And essentially, it's just a place where... Uh, anybody can ask a question and anybody can answer it, which sounds uh, like it would end up being really shitty, but it's not because uh, you have to create a profile with your credentials, people have vote, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, the net result is that you get really good answers to really specific questions that I personally have not been able to find uh, anywhere else. Uh, I follow mostly because I'm a business dork. I mostly follow, mostly follow like the startup and Silicon Valley topics, but there's all kinds of, you know, anything from cooking to, you know, movie making to presidential election, whatever. A couple of good questions uh, right now that I'm looking at are, what are the best kept secrets about startups? Why can't Silicon Valley programmers work from anywhere in the world if they're just writing code? You know, lots and lots and lots and lots of debates about uh, whether you should live in San Francisco, whether the quality of life is worth it, stuff like that. Anyway, so if you are interested in just about anything um, and interesting in getting really good feedback from these the, the people answer these questions are not just like random jack offs these are people who you know there's a little field which will say who this person is and it'll be like founder of the chromebook guy who wrote the you know sorting algorithm for like amazon fulfillment centers or something like that or the people answering these questions or at least the ones that rise to the top so if you're interested in any question in particular ones that pertain to like tech or business or something like that i would definitely suggest checking out quora and one from ashley aaron 
The first is Punk Talks. This is a mental health awareness organization that's, you guessed it, within our punk scene. The girl who runs at Sheridan is an absolute ray of sunshine. I adore her. And recently, she launched pre-orders for a compilation that's going to help raise funds and awareness for Punk Talks. If you want to pre-order this, please, please, please check out punktalks.bigcartel.com. The next is an album. It's Old Bones by Broadside. It did come out in May, so it's not super new, but it's a fantastic pop punk record. It's really grabbed my attention and it hasn't let go, so I'd love for you guys to check it out. The boys in Broadside are some of my favorite people ever. The last is not necessarily music related, but it is a YouTube channel. It's called Smarter Every Day. Basically, this teaches you science lessons in a really easy and accessible way. I first started watching when they took an in-depth look about how tattoos work, so showing you, you know, super slow motion footage of the needle and explaining the process, and it's a great way to stay sharp. And here's what Publicist UK has to recommend. I recommend As Our Swan, the best goth band in the world, and that's an entirely unbiased opinion on my part. It's, a, it's objectively fact. Uh, female singer, very dark, uh, industrial, um, sort of uh, Afghan influences, um, very original sounding, though she's ripped off um, by her lessers a lot, so fuck them. Um, but it's, it's extremely, extremely good. Thanks for listening to Off The Record. If you enjoy the show, the best way to say thank you is to share this episode on social media, whether it's your Twitter, your Facebook, your Tumblr, your whatever, and just tell your friends. We just want the word to spread. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, it's at OffTheRecordFM. You can get show notes, explore old episodes at OffTheRecord.FM. If you think we should be talking about something, please let us know with the hashtag TellOTR on Twitter, or ask us via Tumblr at OffTheRecord.FM. This episode was produced by Jesse Cannon and Ashley Aaron. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week.